Jonah chapter 3, let's read that, and uh, we will go from there. These are the words of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He um, issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Um, our Father and our God, our holy, thrice holy God, we ask and pray now that as we look at your word that you would uh, open our minds, open our hearts, and, and, and honestly pour forth a deep repentance that we may serve you with joy and glad, gladness. Uh, help us, we pray in Christ's name, I pray, amen. <clears throat> so we're now in the second half of the book, and we get to see if Jonah is going to learn his lesson. What do you think, kiddos? Did jo Jonah learn his lesson, or will he get thrown into the sea again? That's what we're going to figure out. So keep in, mind, keep in mind the representational role of Jonah. He's a prophet of Israel. Jonah and other prophets like Nahum and others... They served during this time of looming Assyrian threat. Assyria was the known powerhouse of the time. And of course, like any powerhouse country, you eventually become a warmongering country if you don't serve the Lord Jesus, <coughs> essentially. So Assyria, excuse me, Israel was teetering towards destruction because God was going to use the pagans to humble his covenant people, which is actually the very thing that Jonah is upset about, and we'll see that in the next chapter. Jonah acted like Israel, rebellious and unwilling to essentially dispense to others the grace that God had been given to them. So like Jonah, Israel was going to be thrown into the sea of Assyrian captivity, which did happen, by the way, several just a short couple of decades after Jonah's ministry. Yet, we know that God was going to bring them back to the promised land. Uh, he was going to restore his people to the land that he had given them so that they could get back to functioning the way they were supposed to. So for our purposes, we need to know that, that Jonah is Israel in this sense, kind of a representational role. And we also need to know that Jesus is a greater Jonah and he's a greater Israel, all of that combined as we'll see in a little bit. So let's consider, I'm just going to summarize our text, and we're going to explore this theme of repentance. In verse 1, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God gives him a second chance to carry out his instructions. Will Jonah be as recalcitrant and headstrong and stubborn as before? That's the question. 
using the same verbiage as in chapter 1, God says to him, Arise and go. So Jonah is told to go a second time to go and to preach, and his preaching notes and outline God's going to give him on the way, presumably. Uh, he didn't tell him everything right then. He just said to go, go and, and do this. And thankfully, we're told in verse 3, if you're following along, that Jonah goes according to the word of the Lord. Last time he tried to escape the presence of the Lord, now he's in harmony with the word of the Lord. So far, so good. We note that Nineveh was this great city of God. Um, the Hebrew language there is somewhat ambivalent um, because the word Elohim in Hebrew, which is what we translate God, is plural. So sometimes in context, it's a reference to gods, as in like false gods, plural. Um, but oftentimes, especially when it's Yahweh Elohim or Jehovah, sometimes it's translated, um, we're talking about the Lord God, the one and only true God. So this is the city. It's a great city of God. And the reference there of three days walk reminds us of Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. So what's probably in view here, because uh, there's debate on Nineveh at this time. Um, Mosul, Iraq, by the way, is the present day location. But way back when, you know, this is uh, a few thousand years ago, Nineveh was a big city, but it also had a lot of burrows attached to it. But this whole three days, three walk, three days to walk it thing is probably regarding foreign dignitators, ambassadors. Um, they would spend three days visiting. Typically, you would have a foreign king come, and day one they arrive, and they set up shop. They get, they get their hotel checked in. Um, day two, they have meetings and conclude business. And then day three, it's just kind of relax and then check out. So that's probably what is, is in mind here. And the reason I say that is because Jonah is an ambassador of Yahweh visiting a foreign nation to bring news. That's how we should interpret this. Um, kind of missionary activity. Missionaries do the same thing. They're ambassadors of God, ambassadors of the Lord God, and they're bringing good news. Um, some of you, if you recall, Nineveh was founded way back in Genesis by Nimrod. So these great cities were built, and in a lot of times they were built with the wrong assumption. It was a rebellious effort against, against God. <clears throat> so the city had no doubt this remarkable presence in uh, northern Iraq today. So the three days isn't so much about how long it took to walk around the place. It's more about Jonah spending time preaching in the city. He would have went from place to place, marketplace to marketplace, city gates, Traditionally, that's where, especially in Israel, that's where business was conducted, lawsuits were heard. That's where you went to do business. So Jonah's going from place to place. He's bringing news. What's the news that he brings? And essentially, this is this. Jonah serves Nineveh as covenant lawsuits paper, papers. <laughs> that's what he's telling them. The message in Hebrew is only five words, but he says in verse 4, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just five words in Hebrew. That's all he had to say. Um, we're assuming he probably said more, one would think, but we don't know. So the word overthrown there should be taken to mean that the city is either going to be tossed into repentance or it's going to be tossed into judgment. The meaning is ambiguous, and I think that's on purpose. We're going to see what happens. Uh, they're going to be overthrown and captivated by God, or they're going to be overthrown 
and captivated by God in a negative way. There's positive sanctions, negative sanctions. What's going to happen? So surprisingly, Jonah, now a fisher of men, he casts the net into the waters of Nineveh and he gets quite a haul. The people believed in God. Shocking. They repented and the repentance was demonstrated by um, fasting, not eating, declaring a fast, and sackcloth, which was something you would wear as a sign of mourning. And both of those are signs of genuine sorrow there in verse 5. As such, the king, he gets word of what's going on, and he obeys the Lord's command to arise. It's interesting that Jonah the first time is told to arise and go. He runs away. Jonah says is told to arise now and go to, to Nineveh. He goes, but now the pagan king arises. He gets up and he obeys the command of God the first time, not the second time like Jonah. So the royalty of this king's throne and all of his expensive clothing is essentially exchanged for sackcloth and ashes. Um, he is humbled. Uh, the king would have been this regional governor of sorts, not the king of Assyria. Nineveh at this time was not necessarily their main capital outpost. It was an important city, but it wasn't the most important to them. So it's probably just kind of a local governor. Um, at any rate, the king, he issues this royal pro proclamation. He commands every person and every single animal to position themselves underneath the joy of God's repentance, verse 7. So think about you putting on sackcloth and burlap-type clothing and then going out to your cow and throwing the same thing on them. <laughs> um, whether they knew it or not, God's judgment is sometimes through the means of famine or disaster. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But they clearly knew that this was an all-encompassing repentance. It needed to include everything, including their whole agricultural society. In verse 8, the king furthermore declares that the people must turn from their wicked ways and from the violence which is in their hands. Um, I think I mentioned this in week one, but Assyria was known to be this rather savage and cruel place um, and the king knows it, and the king sees the prophet's point. And rather, than, and, and, and rather than anger the God of Israel, it's interesting, the king flees to repentance quicker than Jonah could run to Tarshish. See, Jonah puts his finger on the nerve of Nineveh's social injustice. The word violence is used there. They were a violent, cruel people. They would treat their enemies poorly in war. Uh, there was no Geneva Convention stuff. It was just all out. And they, when you talk about social injustice, Nineveh was very much familiar with such things. Verse 9 reads this, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So the crisis was presented by Jonah. Here's the crisis. Forty days, this place is obliterated. Like Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. Okay? And then the king, of course, um, responds, and he responds in repentance. And then we see in verse 10 that God is actually watching the whole thing take place. God sees their deeds and how they turn themselves upside down in order to flee their wickedness. It's one of those things where you're either going to turn yourself upside down in repentance, or God's going to turn you upside down in repentance. Um, and in judgment, I should say. So God relented, which is um, sometimes your translations say God changed his mind. God does not change his mind in the sense that 
he figured out and had to learn something new, so he just altered his you know, thinking. It's not that at all. Um, it's not that he changes his infinite wisdom. It's that he contextualizes it and applies it in real-time history. God transcends history, transcends time, but he's a part of it as well because he's chosen to be as a creator. So it's not that he changed his mind because he thought he figured something else. Um, God did not do it. He, he didn't destroy them. So Nineveh was overturned, absolutely, and it didn't require fiery judgment. So there's several things I want to pull out of this section, and I'll just start with this. Jonah is a dying man preaching to dying men, and this is always the case. Um, this is always the case anytime preaching occurs. Jonah has already been to Sheol and back, and now he's sent forth to preach life to those dead in their sins. And it is interesting to note the geopolitical background of this episode um, doesn't end so pretty. I think I mentioned this in week one, but Jonah's ministry was around 750 to 730 in that range B.C. Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. So like things were happening. Talk about political upheaval. So these things were happening. But eventually, though, the Medes and the Babylonians would destroy Nineveh, which happened about 100 years after that incident in 612 BC, which is a major, major turning point. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of like when America won the Revolutionary War. The shift of power changed on the world scene. Um, it went from Assyria, well, Egypt had been a superpower for a long time. Assyria took over, then Assyria collapses, and now the Babylonians. Of course, we know the Babylonians fell apart to the Persians. Persians gave way to the Greeks. The Greeks gave way to the Romans. And such is world history. So their repentance, of course, didn't last very long. They were eventually judged. So Jonah was a dead man walking or fleeing, as it were. And God brings him back. He brings him back and restores him. He sends him to Nineveh to preach. And based on what we know from chapter 4, Jonah is actually hesitant. Um, he goes... But he goes the same way a toddler goes back to bed, having gotten up 17 times, which is to say rather reluctantly. Um, the dying preacher, he serves the lawsuit papers to the Ninevites, and the unthinkable happens. They respond immediately. Immediately. Perhaps the greatest evangelistic episode in history the king and the peasants, all of them from top to bottom, turn their violence, they turn from their violence, and they immediately correct themselves. They move from this visceral hatred of others to repentance, so much so that even the animals, the clueless, unsuspicious animals, are forced to display their repentance. By the way, some more historical um, background. There are records of this time of Assyria during this time was plagued with a whole lot of difficulties. Um, <clears throat> famines were big, plagues, uh, lots of internal strife, revolutionary activity. Uh, Rome eventually had the same thing and just kind of imploded from, from the inside. Um, eclipses were always signs of political shifting and changes. Um, when Nero saw Halley's Comet and things, it was kind of an omen to something bad's going to happen. Um, so they, there were all these things, these natural, disa natural disasters. And I think that, honestly, given their dire situation, a visiting prophet who would come to, I think he would have been heeded because nothing else seemed to work. 
When I went to Senegal, Africa in, when was that, 2005, and we stayed there for the new year to 2006, um, we went into this village and they would literally sacrifice goats at the bottom of this huge tree. And um, here we go, we're like walking around with our Bibles and we have translators and there's teams of us just evangelizing the village. And because that night we were going to put on a Jesus um, kind of storyline, kind of meet them where they're at because it was very animistic, very um, spiritual, animistic, Muslim influence. It's, it was very odd. But I remember the one chief, he said to us, well, your God talks to us, ours doesn't. And I, and I thought, well, that's interesting because <laughs> he pointed to the tree and you could see the bones of the goats. They're just there and their God doesn't talk to them. And here we tell them what God says. And it was this immediate, what was happening is we were trying to get a pastor there to disciple this village. And he had been working with them, but we kind of just came in strong with an evangelistic team, started preaching and teaching. And it was like immediate. It was fascinating to see a whole village just say, you know what? These gods are terrible. This one seems better. And so it may have been pragmatic. It may have been heart change, but you know, who are we to see the heart? We're just supposed to be faithful. So it kind of reminds me of that situation with them that with, uh, with Jonah and them, there was, they were in a dire situation and here a prophet comes in with authority and says the Lord God says to repent or perish and of course they do so in other words even pagans when they're brought to the end of the rope they turn to something or someone so again it may seem pragmatic and at the surface um, their repentance though however shallow it was in Nineveh bought them some time because God did in fact relent so the book of Jonah, like other prophetic books, is situated within this prophetic genre, what we call a covenant lawsuit. Um, think about the prophets. The prophets were prosecuting attorneys of the Most High God. That was their job. Their job was to demonstrate and preach to people and magistrates, everybody in society, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And in doing so, God used covenant sanctions against wicked deviators. Um, when kings and people trusted idols, God sent prophets to persuade them to return to God. Usually we think of prophets, they, they tell, they predict the future. That's not, that was like 1% of anything they would ever do. Most of their job was to say, this is the law of God. This is the covenant of God. You have violated, violated it. Come back to God in repentance or you will suffer the consequences. And they were the attorneys of the Most High. That was their job. So when the people would, so by the way, prosecution and persuasion, those two ideas were the marks of the prophets. Persuading people, prosecuting them, they were, they were speaking for God and bringing his people back. So when the people would not turn to God, the Lord would strike them with confusion or sickness or disaster, political jockeying and other such, such means. Covenant lawsuits were... Serious matters not to be trifled with. Now, it is interesting that the text does not mention circumcision and the Ninevites converting to Yahwehism. Um, they don't take on the covenant relationship that Israel enjoys. And, and what I'm about to say is probably going to get me in trouble, but frankly, it is what it is. Uh, Jonah was, in fact, a social justice warrior. Gasp. <laughs> um, 
Jonah went into Nineveh, and what did he do? He warned the people about their behavior. Okay? He didn't go around telling them, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He warned them about their behavior and what would transpire if they continued on the path towards self-destruction. They, they don't call out to the Lord God like the sailors has, had done. They don't even use God's name here. The sailors did. The Ninevites don't. The king, God is sort of ambiguous here. Elohim. They don't call the, the name of the Lord God. So they don't call out like the sailors had done. And they don't make the sacrifice like the sailors had done that we learned from in chapter 1. They don't seem to forsake their idols and pay homage to the Lord. Jonah simply warns them of the injustice and urges them to repent of their ways. Otherwise, God would drop them all. All right? So, Jonah may be the first social justice warrior. Maybe. So the problem with Nineveh is that they do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and they don't go the whole nine yards. They apparently went back to their evil ways, and we know from history they were eventually destroyed. So step one of repentance has to lead to step two of further faith, further cultivation of repentance, um, but it did not. At any rate, <clears throat> Jonah was quite familiar with Deuteronomy, and I believe Jonah was quite familiar with the sanctions of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And thus I think he knew and he understood that Nineveh deserved the wrath of God for their wickedness. So he reasons thusly, if God sanctions his own people for their wickedness, how much more will he sanction those outside of the covenant? That's his thinking. So if I'm going to go, okay, okay, okay. God, God loves us. He's long-suffering. We've been wicked. God's going to bring us to our knees of repentance. But look at them. <laughs> look how bad they are. Of course he's going to do that to them. So God instructs them to go and preach a message of warning, which itself was a grace. As we'll learn in the next section, I think part of the reason that Jonah threw a temper tantrum about the grace of God was because he was jealous. He was jealous. Whenever God, whenever in Scripture God gives grace to those outside of the covenant, the intention all along was to provoke Israel to jealousy so they would repent. It's part of Paul's point in Romans 11. So that, Jonah knows this. He understands this paradigm. And we know from Romans 2.14, it is the kindness of God which is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, <clears throat> we would be remiss to ignore what Jesus says in Matthew 12.41. Cody read it earlier. I'm going to read it now just to refresh your memory. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. That's Jesus. What does Jesus mean? In the eyes of the Lord, Nineveh did repent and God did re relent as a result. They repented, God relented. The problem for the Pharisees in Jesus' day was twofold. One, they ignored the sign of Jonah, which we've already covered, that being the fish and its relationship to the tomb. That was going to be the great sign. Jesus is going to be buried in the belly of the earth. But two, they completely ignored the preaching of Jesus. Jonah's, in, Jonah's imperfect circumstances pointed a bunch of imperfect people to the perfect God, and it worked, at least in the immediate. Um, Nineveh, they turned to God, they redeemed the time, they bought themselves time, 
Jesus, he takes this whole paradigm and this understanding and he applies it to his ministry, to his contemporaries at that time. Um, the, the Pharisees, they're out of time. Time is short for them. The, the, pagan, the pagans repented. The sophomoric religious leaders that Jesus dealt with, they do not. They don't care what Jesus has to say. So therefore, the Ninevites stand up, he says, and they condemn the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. See, the problem is compounded. Jonah, Jonah preached a dimly lit revelation, but Jesus was and is the revelation of God. Nineveh turned in repentance, having, very, having understood very little about the things of God. They knew very little. But the religious leaders, they would not repent, staring the word of God in the face. To, mu- to whom much is given, much is required. And when you're staring Jesus in the face, just know that you've been given everything, which means everything is now required of you. And the r- religious leaders couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. They were too proud. They were fit only for divine judgment. And, and note the connection here. God relented from destroying Nineveh within 40 days, Jesus would come in power and destroy Jerusalem in 40 years. See, Jonah teaches us this profound truth. And again, this may get me into trouble, but we don't have to choose between the preaching of the gospel and the work of social justice. We don't have to choose between the two. Um, Preaching the gospel always inherently means confronting idolatry and injustice. It's just what it means. Um, Confronting injustice requires confronting the idols, confronting the idolatry. Confronting idols requires this meticulous patience in exposing their harmful fruits as well as taking the axe to the root. And I tell you what, something I learned from this reopen rally a couple weeks ago and Chris, you may be feeling the same way, but when you're able to put your finger on injustice in a way that people already see, then you're able to bring other things to bear and you make the connections for them. When you start making connections about big pharma and all these other issues, like you, you end up piecing, you, we're literally taking this worldview into places where people are begging for a solution. And, the, and you can't beg the state for it because the state is a terrible savior. So you, you, you end up preaching the gospel in a way of confronting idols, confronting injustice, in a way that people just, they don't, they're not familiar with it. They have no concept on how to do that. But I want you to note the connection. You can't know the idols until you know the gospel. And you cannot know the injustice, you cannot know the idolatry in the injustice until you know the law of God and its relationship to the gospel of the kingdom. See, when we preach Jesus, we are preaching the law that he came to write upon our hearts. Only then are we able to preach against these injustices. But when we know the injustice, we must speak to the injustice. Um, Preaching then becomes less about escaping the world and more about dealing with the world. Most of preaching today is escaping the world. Preaching should be dealing with the world. 
instead of presenting the gospel as being solely concerned with what happens when we die, let us present the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom, which concerns what happens today and tomorrow. See, and right now, the world doesn't know what to do. Um, statism, for example, that's our great idol. It's fueled by a religious humanism. Um, this uh, this um, idolatry works itself out in many different ways, which means we must work the gospel in in many different ways. See, at the core of our message is the concept of repentance, and we'll end with a few more final thoughts. The word repentance is used several times in this, in, in this passage, and its meaning is very simple. Turn from evil, turn towards good. Turn from evil, turn towards good. Amend your ways, change your mind, change your thinking, adhere your thoughts to the word of God, amend your ways and serve the king. That's what repentance is. However, repentance isn't a novelty you keep on the shelf over in the corner where it gathers dust and it goes largely ignored. Um, repentance is the daily practice of the Christian. We should be as familiar with it as we are putting on clothing, but not so overly familiar with it that it becomes like breathing. Uh, most of us are so overly familiar with breathing that we don't think about it much. We just sort of, we, d- we do. Don't ignore it like that, but don't, don't, don't become too accustomed to repentance that it means nothing to you. Repentance is the preface to the gospel message. It's the engine that drives gospel preaching, both to ourselves, to our children, to our friends, to the world. <clears throat> when we understand the holiness of God and what, what it is God actually demands from the world, indeed from us first, we capture the essence of repentance. Repentance at its root is an exchanging of idols. We trade the idol for the grace and mercy of God. And that's what we must do, and that's what we must encourage others to do. These efforts lately, they don't see the idol. They wouldn't call statism an idol. They don't, they don't know that. But we're shining a light on it and saying, yes, it is an idol, and it's a really bad one, and it's really mean and ugly and rude and a whole lot of other unsavory words. (laughs) And we can only do that and encourage others to do that because Christ has given it to us. Repentance is absolutely a gift. Nineveh didn't figure this out on their own. Okay, God gave it to them. God gives repentance and he gives faith, which means it's our job to stop selling those things on eBay and start using them. So instead, we must revel, revel in the gifts. Like a child on Christmas morning, so we must be towards repentance and faith. When opening the present, we say, ah, yes, I needed more repentance. This is a joy. I needed more. When we are captured, we can capture others. The kingdom must advance. We are not a stalemate religion. This is unconditional surrender to the terms and conditions of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is Lord. We, we are not taking any prisoners and we ain't asking. So come, world, and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to us, but you've been good to us in a way that's not about us. And we like to make it about us. You've been good and gracious so that we would in turn be good and gracious, so that we would look more and more like Christ, who was gentle and lowly and humble towards sinners and not puffed up and proud and arrogant. 
So, Father, my prayer is that you would indeed, by your Spirit, uh, create within, within us a deep desire for the joy of repentance, a deep desire for pressing the gospel in to every crevice of the heart and every crevice of society because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we pray now, God, for strength, for wisdom, as we serve you in your kingdom this week. In Christ's name, amen.